Several years ago, I watched a television program entitled Risking It All. Risking It All. On this program were documented video stories of risk. One was a young man who rode his bike over a 2,000-foot cliff in Brazil wearing a parachute, which he opened only after a long fall. Risk. Another was a guy who jumped out of a helicopter without a parachute. A hundred feet above this narrow butte, which also soared a thousand feet above the canyon floor, to land on an air-filled pad. Risk. Risk is the rage today. We have extreme sports like ice climbing, rock climbing, extreme skateboarding, hang gliding, extreme skiing. Activities like bungee jumping, cliff jumping, bridge diving, skydiving, stunt bicycling, motorcycling, high wire walking. You talk about it. It's there. It's all risk. As if life isn't dangerous enough already. That's the question. Well, everyone has a certain threshold for risk. Some people like the excitement of lots of risk. Others will do everything possible to avoid risk. Life carries enough risks of its own, like walking across the street to your mailbox. When we were living in Lakewood, Washington, I walked across the street one day to get the mail. And a car approached me from behind me. It was a wide enough road, but approached me from behind and came so close that the passenger side mirror brushed the sleeve on my jacket. I was so angry, I chased after them. And I don't know what was more risky almost getting hit by a car or an angry Norwegian on foot chasing down two gang members in a car. One of them was risky. Some people like risk. I never did catch him, by the way. <laughs> Good thing I may not be here today if that was the case. All of us have times in our life where we must risk. Some call it taking chances, others facing the unknown. Still others would say we're merely going forward without knowing the future for sure. Action taken by faith. Risk. Well, today we're going to look at risk. We're going to look at a group of people that wanted absolutely no risk and a man who is about to risk a lot. And we're, going to, we're looking at the risk of reach today. And we're going to start by looking at a video clip from The Chosen. The Chosen. So let's go ahead and play it. Shabbat Shalom, Rabbi. Shabbat Shalom, Rabbi. You've been to the synagogue, Rabbi? No, I have not, Zachary. Why this synagogue, Rabbi? It's not on any of our maps. That's a good question. Have you noticed that no matter where we go recently, we are more and more misunderstood? <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. It's a very complicated time. No one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. No Ammonite 
or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way. Shalom. Even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. May I, may I see? Because they did not meet you with bread and with what? Excuse me, what are you doing? What is your name? Elam. Your friend Elam has a withered hand. Are you a healer? It is not lawful to heal on Sabbath. Which one of you who has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath will not take hold of it and lift it out? Who are you to speak to our congregation in such a of way? How much more value is this man than a sheep? Stop this at once. Come here. Come stand here. It's okay. Elam, sit down. We don't know this person. He could be a shaman. Is it lawful on Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? This affliction does not threaten his life. It does not even affect his health. Let it up. of this healing appears in three places, three of the Gospels, in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in Luke 6, I'm just going to read a couple of verses um, at the end of this, this particular passage. Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save a life or destroy it? He looked around at them all, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But they were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. What we're going to look at today is four attitudes toward risk that the Pharisees and teachers of the law had, and five risks that this man took. Four Four attitudes toward risk that the, the church, Pharisees, teachers of law had, and the attitude that this man 
took. Four attitudes towards risk. The attitude of the teachers of the law, basically, these were the religious leaders in the established church. First thing, they did not want to risk, was they did not want to risk change. They did not want to risk change. Change carries risks. These men did not want to risk change in their way of thinking, their behavior, or their rules of life. They, they didn't care about this man with a handicap. They were comfortable with their own rules, their regulations, their rituals, and traditions. They had a system, and everything fit in its right place. That system was called tradition. Tradition. Now, tradition isn't necessarily bad unless it keeps us from healthy change. How many of you have seen the movie or seen the musical Fiddler on the Roof? Okay, it's a, it's a great musical. Set in Anatevka, a small village in Russia in 1905. The main character is Tevye, a Jewish father steeped in tradition. Tradition. His daughters, one at a time, began to resist tradition and they began to pursue their own path as far as marriage. The, young, the oldest didn't want to marry the man her parents had chosen. He was an older man, a widower, and the town butcher. He had a good job, you know. Tevye's second daughter wants to marry a revolutionary who came from the city. And finally, his youngest daughter marries outside the faith. He was a Russian. Each wanted to choose their own husband, someone that she had fallen in love with. And that was considered absurd because tradition said otherwise. We've never done it that way before. Now, being the father of two daughters, I've always liked the idea of arranged marriages. My daughters, not so much, not so much. But Tevye's daughters were advocating change, and that change brought risks. Tradition is safe. We know where we're going. Some of you may be familiar with this story that illustrates the point. There was a family that got together every Thanksgiving for dinner, and the choice meal for that dinner was ham. If the family tradition was ham. They all, we all have those kinds of traditions. Now before cooking the ham, they always cut off the ends of the ham. One of their children was curious and asked mom, why do you cut off the, the ends of the ham before cooking it? Her mother said, well, I don't know, mom always did that. Since they were all together, she asked her mom, Mom, why did you always cut the ends of the ham off before cooking it? She answered, I don't know. Grandma always did that. So they found Grandma reading to the children and asked her. And both mother and daughter returned to the kitchen with a sheepish look. And they answered, Grandma always cut the ends of the ham off because the pan was too small. <laughs> Tradition. Tradition is safe. It carries no risks. It requires no thinking. And in our story today, these people were more concerned about tradition than people. They wanted to keep all their laws. Their concern for the law was fine, but it was the tradition that they added to the law. Of all the laws handed down to Moses, they laid the most stress on the keeping of the Sabbath. If one violated the Sabbath law, according to the Mishnah, one could actually be stoned. And the Jews had established a complicated series of ordinances to make the breaking of the Sabbath almost impossible. If you dragged a chair across the room on the Sabbath, you would part the dust on the floor, and that was defined as plowing, which was forbidden work on the Sabbath. Serious. 
So how are we with change? Are we afraid to risk change? Change. Or are our traditions more important to us than people? As we look at the past in the church, church has made a lot of changes over the last years. But churches have expected unchurched people, people who don't know anything about church, they come for the first time, they come into an, a religious-looking building, into, the, into a lobby we call a narthex, into an auditorium we call a sanctuary. We ask them to sit on benches we call pews, sing six, 17th century music in King James English that we call hymns, accompanied by an instrument they've never heard of called an organ. And then we expect them to come back. Now, we've made a lot of strides here from that. There's nothing wrong with traditions of that, but there's a huge gap between people that are unchurched and people who are churched. I remember when we were in Wichita. We spent a year of ministry in Wichita, Kansas, and we had a basketball camp every summer. And at the end of the basketball camp, we had a Sunday morning award ceremony service. And 90% of the kids that came to this, we had about 50 kids, um, were unchurched. They had never, never been in a church service at all. They came to the basketball camp, and we said, we're going to present awards. They came. And I'll never forget, there were, there were three rows of them over here and a couple over here, and we, we took the traditional offering, you know, you take the offering. So we say we're going to take an offering. And so you can see these kids. They're, they're, there's a plate passing in front of them. There's some bills in there. And we're, we're saying we're going to take an offering. And we're looking at this thing pass. And I'm wondering, what's going through their minds when you say we're going to take an offering? They, they didn't know what to do. And it occurred to me that they don't know what to do in that setting. And it makes it uncomfortable. People are more important than traditions. And we want to lower the barriers for unchurched people or spiritually seeking people because tradition by itself can keep people from coming to faith and getting to know Jesus Christ. How do we deal with change? How do we deal with change? And what do we do to lower the barriers? The message is changeless, but methods have to constantly change. So they didn't want to risk change. Secondly, they did not want to risk appearances. They didn't want to risk appearances. These religious leaders were more concerned about externals than internal. They wanted to look good. Now, I think we all do. We all kind of want to look good, don't we? But what people could see was more important than what they could not see. Actions were considered more important than attitude. It was about the outside, not the inside. Heart issues were unimportant. Pleasing God had become what they did, not what they were, what they did. Now, I've spent some time studying revival and spiritual awakenings. There's something happening and stirring in our country right now, very exciting. One such revival occurred in 1904 and 1905 in Wales, in the British Isles. At this time in history, when you look back in history, what was going on there, there, were a lot, there was a lot of moral corruption. There was gambling and prostitution, alcoholism and addictions. And some of this lifestyle included such evils as dancing, playing cards, and going to the theater. Those of you that are raised in a church understand what I'm talking about. 
When God changed the hearts of thousands of people, they converted to faith in Jesus Christ, and they quit doing all those evil things. Internal heart change resulted in external action change. The lifestyle changed after the heart changed. This new lifestyle that they embraced now became traditional values. The next generation grew up with these traditional values. Then they took the things that Christians did not do and created a whole new religion. I say new religion because these external negatives, don't drink, don't smoke, don't dance, don't gamble, don't go to the theater, became the measure of their religion. All the things the new Christians did not do, the next generation incorporated it into their Christianity and said, these prohibitions are part of our faith. Therefore, they created a list of external actions which dictated who was in and who was out, who was a Christian and who wasn't a Christian. Externals became the measure of righteousness, and they forced externals to become the internals. The result? The word legalism. Legalism, list of do's and don'ts. Christianity became defined by what we don't do and what we do, not by who we are. It was a list mentality of that things. We began to measure spirituality by what we didn't do. And I'm more spiritual than you because I don't do more things than you don't do. Did you get that? Whatever we don't do, we measure our spirituality by what we don't do instead of who we are what we do. More concerned about looking good and doing good than being good. It's not what we do, it's who we be. It's not very good grammar, but it's descriptive. It's not what we do, it's who we be. In this story, the Sabbath day was for physical rest, yes, but it was instituted by God to rest from labor in order to give ourselves to God in worship. Rest for worship. So they did not want to risk appearances. C, letter C, the third. They did not want to risk love. Love demands risks. These guys were unbelievable. In their lack of love for this man, they were plotting to murder Jesus. Any, anybody see a problem with that? Which was more sinful, breaking the Sabbath or watching Jesus with the intent to commit murder? And somehow they just didn't see the contradiction. 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. I just want to read the first three verses from there. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 3 says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. What does that say? I can have all the religious actions. I can have all the religious knowledge. I can even have great faith in, in God. I can even sacrifice everything I have for others. But if I don't have love, if I don't love, I am nothing. Zero. These guys fit that. They were nothing. They had no love. Are we willing to risk love? Love people who are different, people who are unlovable, who are unattractive or, or messed up. 
People who do evil or destructive things. People who have handicaps of all types, visible or invisible, dysfunction, brokenness. We live in a, in a culture and a world where brokenness is so common. Are we willing to risk love? Letter D, fourthly, they did not want to risk thinking the best. They didn't want to risk thinking the best. They were looking for a reason. It says they were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. Thinking the best is a risk. Positive versus negative. Looking for something wrong. Reading the worst into a situation. And if we've been burned, betrayed, thinking the worst is the natural self-defense. Thinking the, the worst, looking to accuse, putting the absolute worst light on the situation. These religious leaders had not come to church to worship God. They came to accuse Jesus. Negative. Negative. We need positive there. So these guys didn't want to risk change. They didn't want to risk appearances. They didn't want to risk love or risk thinking the best. So what about the man with the withered hand? What about the man with the withered hand? What risk did he take? By the way, you'll notice in one of the passages it says it was his right hand. In the video it was his left hand. Don't worry about it, okay? That's theatrical license. And we're not sure which one it was, but whoever remembered the right or the left, doesn't matter. This man had a withered hand. What, what did he risk? Five risks that this man took. What was it? First one is the risk of worship. The risk of worship. This man had come to the synagogue. He had most likely come to the synagogue on the Sabbath just to worship God. He had to have a real desire to worship, to have the courage to come to a synagogue. People with handicaps or deformities were frowned upon if they entered the temple. They just, it, you, it was like you were, it was unwritten, but you were not really welcome. For this man to worship, he had to forget about himself and abandon himself to God. He had to forget about himself, abandon himself to God. One critical element of worship is forgetting about ourselves and abandoning ourselves to God. Self-consciousness replaced with God-consciousness. By the way, if you, if you wonder why we have the music at a certain volume... It's so you can sing unconsciously because nobody can hear you. I, I tell the sound people, make it loud enough that you encourage people to sing, but so, loud, so that they can sing at the top of their voice and not feel self-conscious, okay? There's something about losing that self-consciousness, so we're singing to God. We're not singing for somebody else, and we're not, oh, I, 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 I don't know if my voice is good enough, whatever. We are here to worship, worship God. They didn't have handicapped parking or specially designed buildings. The, the handicapped in this day were viewed as accursed. Accursed. This man came anyway. His heart was one of worship. He didn't come to be healed. He didn't come to get anything. He came to give adoration and praise. He was just there to worship God. Why do we come to church? To get something for ourselves or just to worship God. True worship is a risk. Abandoning self, forgetting about self, and focusing on God. See, it's not about us, it's about God. 
Why do we come? Do we come to worship God, to touch God and be touched by God? The second risk he had was the risk of handicap. The risk of handicap. This, this man had a hand in a withered state, probably not congenital, but as a result of an injury or an accident. Perhaps muscular atrophy, but it was shriveled. Whatever the handicap, it was a visible handicap, something everyone could see. In spite of this handicap, he came out in public, and there was a risk of embarrassment of being, being seen. Many of us here this morning have the risk of handicapped. It might be physical or visible. Most likely, it's internal. It's invisible. Invisible. It's something in our past or guilt that we carry. Fear of some sort or abuse. It could be psychological. It could be spiritual, emotional, social. Scars of handicaps. And it's a risk. It's a risk to reveal to anyone else that we have a handicap. But without the risk of revelation, there would never have been the miraculous healing. Closely related is the third risk, the risk of admitting need. This man knew he had a problem. No one had to tell this man he had a problem. The question is, are we willing to risk admitting need? There's one thing We in America, Scandinavians, Germans, typical Americans in the Midwest, we have a real hard time admitting need. Am I alone? Admitting need, admitting need. What area of your life, what area of your life is withered right now? What area of your life is withered right now? Is it a relationship, family life, marriage? an ongoing sin, spiritual walk, your prayer life. Sometimes we must see our need, sometimes reveal our need in order to be healed. It's a risk. It's a risk. Some people are well aware of their needs, others are not. Interesting passage in Revelation where Jesus is talking to the church in Laodicea. And it says in chapter 3 of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 15, I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Wow. Being aware of our needs. First of all, before God, and sometimes being able to confess those to other believers, to pray, ask for healing. Risk of admitting need. The fourth risk the man took was a risk of faith. In verse 8, Jesus said, get up and stand in front of everyone. And the man responded in faith. He responded in trust. He stood in front of everyone with an attitude of expectancy. Faith carries risks. God says to you, take your friend to lunch and share your faith. Risk. God says, give me a tithe or 10%, and I will bless you. 
risk. You know, I, I, this isn't in my message, but I'm going to throw it in. Uh, we had somebody in, in the church that wasn't sure about tithing. We talked about giving 10%. That seems like an awful lot. And I said one Sunday, I preached on tithing. I do it about once a year. I don't want to preach on money too often or nobody will come back. But that's just the thing. Um, basically, I said, um, 10% of your income may seem like a lot. So why don't you do this? Start incrementally. Start with 1%. 1%. Next month, go 2%. Then 3%. And until you get up to 10% at the end of the year. and see what, Just see what God... God says, test me in this. He doesn't say it, anything else, testing him. But in this, he says, test me. They did that. I, I didn't know until later. It was a year later. They came to me and they said, you know what? We did what you said. We, we tried it a little at a time. Said, we have more money in savings. We paid for, our cars are paid for, everything. They said, we don't know how it worked, but it worked. We tested God and it worked incrementally. That's a, that's a step of faith. And God may say to you, take a step of faith. I talked s- several weeks ago about the family restaurant in, in Smoky Point, Washington that was open seven days a week. God told them to close Sundays and they, they argued they finally closed and God upped their business and then, then that was the Sabbath. Then they said you need to take family time so they closed Saturdays and their business boomed Monday through Friday and they had much more business than they had before. Five days instead of seven. Because God said, take a risk of faith. Take a step of faith. Operating business with integrity and God's godly principles. Keep praying for family members who do not yet know Jesus. Expectancy is a risk of faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not See, this man demonstrated faith, hoping for, do not see, sure of, certain of. What risk of faith is God asking you to take today? What risks of faith is God asking Eau Claire Wesleyan Church to take today? Or do we have to see everything first? Change, risk. Then Jesus asked the question of the people standing around. Interesting question. He says, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to destroy it? He gave the Pharisees a chance to speak. This would be like at a wedding. I don't know if it's ever occurred to you or, or happened to you at a wedding when the pastor says, if anyone has reason, these two should not be married. Speak now or forever hold your peace. I never do that. So if, you're, if you ask me to do a wedding, don't worry. I'm not going to ask. You always have this, some disgruntled ex-boyfriend or something that shows up just for that question to say whatever. No, we don't do that. But it was like this moment of silence. Speak now or hold your peace. And Jesus said that. He said that. Is it to do good or evil, to save a life or to destroy it? He just asked them the question. What did he get? Nothing. No response. Not only did this man risk admitting need, a risk of faith, but the ultimate risk of reach was the risk of obedience. The risk of obedience. You say, I can't obey, it's impossible. 
Jesus makes the impossible possible. But you don't know how withered my life is right now. You don't know how impossible my situation is. No, I don't. I, I don't have to know. Jesus knows. Jesus knows. His mission necessitates the doing of the impossible. We are just called to obey. For this man, it was not a case of waiting to obey until there was a consciousness of healing, but obedience to God's command before the fact. Jesus said to him, stretch out your hand. Stretch out your hand. An action of the will by faith. This man may have tried many times to stretch out his hand. It was impossible. He had tried on his own. Was Jesus mocking him? Was Jesus going to humiliate him? Was everyone going to laugh nervously when nothing happened? No. Through an act of his will, a risk of reach, contact was made with the power of the living God. The power resident in the words of Jesus, the command, stretch out your hand. Behind that command was all the power in the universe. The words that said, let there be light, and there was light. Every command of creation. The power when Jesus said, stretch out your hand. Jesus says to you today, stretch out your hand. Obey. Stretch out your withered hand. Stretch out that part of you that is in desperate need. You may have tried and tried to fix it yourself and failed. It's impossible. But in the face of the impossible, Jesus calls you to obey and stretch out your hand. Jesus says, give me your withered hands, your handicaps, your marriage, your needs, your fears, your pain, your suffering, your sorrow, your weakness, your inabilities. He said, let me restore you to full health. The risk of reach. All the power in the universe is behind the command. The words, the person, the mercy, and the power. Because a man was face to face with Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, he was instantly healed. Disease had to flee in the presence of the healer. Jesus could not witness disease without removing it. Disease could not continue in the presence of him who is life. Do you have a withered hand today? Whatever part of your life that represents, risk that reach of faith, the risk of reach. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you give us real examples of people who really lived, who experienced many of the same feelings that we experience. And I pray, Lord, today that you would speak to our hearts knowing that you are just waiting for us to call out with that risk of reach. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you 
would reach us today as we call on you.